When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With Independent Bookstore Day just around the corner, on this episode of The Literary Life, I bring you a lively conversation I recently had with Jeff Deutsch, one of the greatest booksellers I know, who came to Books and Books to present his brilliant new book, In Praise of Good Bookstores. It's been said of In Praise of Good Bookstores that at its core, this is a compendium of delights for the thoughtful reader. Jeff is a director of Chicago's Seminary Co-op Bookstores, this nation's first not-for-profit bookstore whose mission is bookselling. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is one of the most beautiful stores. I've been traveling since last Tuesday, and normally when I'm not in uh, in my bookstore, I'm at other bookstores or libraries. This is about as beautiful a store as I've ever seen, and you all are spoiled. I just want to begin there. <laughs> we should all have stores like this. Well, thank you, Jeff. But the beauty of this book is you begin to appreciate how different bookstores can be, but they can all be wonderful. And... Uh, why don't you speak a little bit about what um, was the impetus for writing this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you for the kind words. And I, I have to say that you've led the way for so many of us, and I've been looking up to you for years. It's really special to be in this space uh, talking about this book. That and just means I'm old. <laughs> uh, and a mensch, I just have to say, mention. Uh, so, you know, there's... Uh, I'm not a writer. I mean, I've been writing for since I'm 13 years old. I've been reading. I, I think more about reading than I do writing. Uh, and when I went to the seminary co-op, which is about eight years ago now, I knew for sure that that should exist. Uh, the argument that the store uh, had just by dint of its existence was so profound. And yet, we too, we were not a no-profit. We were losing quite a bit of money. And I was trying to convince other people in publishing and bookselling and the cultural world that we were actually uh, different in a certain way, that there was an argument to be made for a store like ours. And to be specific, our store carries 100,000 volumes, mostly academic, scholarly, or literary. Like this store, uh, well, there are no, no knickknacks, and this store has very few of them. Um, we love knickknacks, but not in that store. Uh, and the books sell very slowly, and the inventory doesn't turn quickly. What's powerful about that is the experience of the presence of books, what we find when people are in the stacks. So the hope in writing this book was to replicate what it feels like to browse the stacks of our bookstore and using the book itself as a way to show someone 
through the shelves. It's interesting because as I was reading it, our first tagline when we had a bookstore, this is our 40th anniversary of Books and Books, and the very first tagline we had was Books and Books where browsers are always welcome. And all throughout this book, I felt right at home because what Jeff points out is the, the power of browsing. And not only browsing in terms of a bookstore, but how we browse in life. And, and I want to go right, I want to skip to that immediately, if you can, and talk about browsing and what that means in the context of this. Absolutely. So I will say that um, one of the things in thinking about the bookstore in the 21st century, uh, we recognize that no reader needs a bookstore to buy books, and most no bookstore that sells just new books can make a living selling on the margin of those books. So what do we need a bookstore for? And I certainly, some might say we don't need a bookstore at all. Uh, we can get books online. But certainly all of you are here, and we know what the magic that happens in these spaces. So it, it dawned on me, and I think there are some of us who agree, that the primary product of the bookstore is actually not the book itself. It's the browsing experience. It's the presence of books. It's the physical space that brings people together and the community that's built around it. Now, the word browse, it actually has a, uh, I don't know how, how many of you know the etymology of it. I didn't. I, I, I looked it up in my, my big two-volume OED uh, and re recognized that browse was actually a gastronomical term and that uh, cows would, there would be browsage for the cows and it was the, the shrubs that they would eat and then they would ruminate, their stomachs would ruminate. And, and thinking about us being of the browsing kind, and this is, uh, you know, the, when the usage started to shift and thinking, well, that actually is what we're doing, right? We're just wandering and having a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and ruminating and thinking deeply about what whatever it might be, which is really just digestion uh, in some way. And it was it's a beautiful idea. And for me, I spent my whole life, like you said, my whole adult life in bookstores um, as a, a profession. But what do I do the second I get off of work is I go to another bookstore or the library or my own bookstore, or my own uh, office library, which is uh, about 5,000 volumes. And I just can't get enough. And what happens, that slowness, contemplation, that moving inward, it's profound, and there aren't a lot of spaces that we have created for that. It's interesting that you mentioned that, because prior to opening Books and Books, the thing that I would do most, uh, we had family in New York City, particularly Manhattan. Brooklyn wasn't a thing back then, but Manhattan was. And what I would literally do, I would literally walk from the Upper West Side and go all the way down and stop in every single bookstore, going all the way up to the east side, and then I would cross through the park. Mm -hmm. And in those days, you had some of the stores that you mentioned, like the Gotham Book Mart, uh, the St. Mark's Bookshop. Right. You know, and for us also, in the early days, we art, architecture, design, which is in this room, was always very big for us. So I used to stop off. There were bookstores called Yap Ritman, the Madison Avenue Bookshop, you know, all of these bookstores that are no longer there. And there was something about, I mean, remember, this is before the internet. This is before the kind of browsing that we think of today, right, with our browsers. This is when you literally had to physically browse. And then you would walk into these stores and you'd be met with something absolutely spectacular that you had never seen before. And you do something really interesting with browsing. And I'd never quite seen it before, mm -hmm. but you talk about the different kinds of browsers. Uh -huh. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Absolutely, right. Um, so I, you know, one of the things that's really fun about being in book spaces is we get to watch you. 
wandering the store and we see the flight paths and everyone has a different flight path. And I think for most of us, we have our own uh, flight paths as well that are um, different. And so one of the things that I do in the book is I, I do a taxonomy of the browser. Uh, and there, there are people, um, there's different types, right? So there's like the flaneur who just wanders the streets, right? They wander the stacks. Um, and I, um, thinking about like the town crier, we have town criers who are just like, hear ye, hear ye, I've got a great new book on the shelf, Young Mungo has come out, uh, right? Um, we have people like the devotee, uh, they pray daily, they come in, the penitent who is looking to be redeemed. And thinking about it, um, and part of it you know, is, is obviously a little bit tongue in cheek, um, but and think about our relationship to books and book spaces. That is a completely, it's not just about reading either. It's actually about being among books. And like one of the things, there's a you know, tactile experience as well, right? So the, um, you know, there's the chef who wanders and they're waiting for the book to ripen, right? And they, they, they might feel it, they might smell it. Uh, and that, that idea of what does it take to you know, have the book finally become uh, ready for that reader, it, it's, it's not always immediate. So, um, no, it, it's 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 worth the read. Just to, to you're you're basically browsing a bookstore when you read this book. I just want you to know you the the structure is just brilliant that way. So let's skip right over to something you alluded to a little bit. And all of us who are in this business understand that when you come into this business, what you're doing is you're 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 kind of, in order to become smitten by this you have to understand a di the different concept of value. Value isn't necessarily measured in dollars and cents. Value is measured in a different way. And unfortunately, un unlike him, most bookstores everywhere are you know, in the profit and loss structure of things. So value is only viewed typically in one way. And one of the things that I've always thought about is if we think of value as something very different, that it's almost as if we should be able to pay our bills with something that I call karma credits, <laughs> you know, as opposed to car uh, carbon credits, because we're providing a kind of service and a kind of space, a community space, just like the library is, just like parks are, just like anything else is. Um, and why don't you why don't you riff on that a little bit because. You, you speak to it so well. We're a nonprofit. We still lose a lot of money. We, lo we lose as much money as we were losing when we were a for-profit, which was two and a half years ago. Uh, and it's about $300,000 a year. And that's still like we actually should lose, quote unquote, lose probably three quarters of a million uh, or to a million a year. Um, I, I got to a point, so we were founded as a member-owned cooperative that was ostensibly built to uh, in, in, you know, give, pay dividends to shareholders. Um, and recognizing that that's actually not why we're here. Why we're here is to pay cultural dividends. You said which karma, karma, uh, karma credit? Karma credits. Yeah, karma credits. That's that's exactly why we're here. It's for karma credits. And and that it actually is a community-owned space. And this is true of every bookstore. This store is a cultural institution. It's not a retailer. It doesn't mean that we don't sell books and that we don't buy and sell. But if the idea is to buy cheap and sell dear, that is the retailer's way, and it's what makes a good retailer. We weren't failing because we were bad retailers. We were succeeding because we were doing the cultural work that was required. And let's just say that out loud. That is what the, the store is for. 
The point about value, um, so obviously we want to pay people. We want to pay better than we pay now. We want to um, have more books on the shelf. We want to ensure that we can keep books that sell slowly. But acknowledging that while there's value uh, and that we look at things like, you know, the beautiful meals that are served here and the bottles of wine that are served here, um, and then we look at some of the great art and literature that's been created, and to think that the value and worth are synonymous they're just not uh, all of the things that matter in life are the things that we can't put a price on and it's things like love and beauty and meaning and purpose and reverence and suffering and i mean the good and bad all of it those are the things that actually matter and for cultural endeavors there there should be and there needs to be and there is for so many cultures a different um, currency and we want to shift the conversation for our store and for other bookstores who care to do it, and this is one argument, uh, there are plenty of arguments of other kinds of stores uh, that says that these stores are actually not meant to make money. It costs us to sell books. Every time someone buys a book from our store, it costs us. It used to cost us $2 for every $100 book. Now it costs us about $40 because of the pandemic. We, we were hoping to get it down to $20 as a cost. Uh, and we're grateful for that. So we're not losing money. We're investing money. And the community is not giving us charity. They're investing in a model that they all believe in. Well spoke, well said. And, and it's also when you, the way I've always looked at it as well is, you know, people can come in and say, you know, I can get this book cheaper, but you can't get this experience exactly. where you get That's that right. book cheaper. You can't meet the person, you know, who you bump into. There's something that I've always thought about, and I know that you've, you know, about it. It's called the great good place. Mm -hmm. You know, where do you go after home, after work? Where, where is that third place? And it used to be beauty parlors and, and newsstands and that sort of thing, bars. But the bookstore is one of those places, one of those third places. So there's value in all of that that's... You can't really measure it in terms of dollars and cents. And, and it's that beautiful sense of community which I think a good bookstore you know, provides. And you talk about community in your book a lot, which is something I appreciate. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just to um, jump on that quickly. So I was in Detroit. Uh, so the book came out a, a week ago Tuesday. And I was in Detroit on a panel of booksellers. Some of them had been doing it for 40 years. Some had just opened in the last two years. And one of the things that we were talking about in the store that had been there for 40 years, this is John King in Detroit. It's a beautiful, beautiful store. I mean, they do great work. said, people come in in search of themselves. And thinking about what it means to walk into a space that is a third space, um, but it, actually it's for solitaires too. It's a place where one wanders and they can actually discover something about themselves that they didn't know without anyone else in, you know, in, the, in the vicinity. And that is, seems to me perhaps a singular experience in a retail environment. Uh, or even a service environment. You might, you might find it in a, a religious environment or um, you know, perhaps an arts environment, but not really in a retail environment. And that, I think, is important. It is. I mean, I, I realize as I'm sitting here that we're, we're talking about bookstores as if they are temples in, in a spiritual sense. And it's hard not to do that when I speak to Jeff because I'd like you to know a little bit about Jeff's background. And Jeff got into this, and he writes about it in the book, from an extremely sort of philosophical sense. And Jeff's whole early life was wrapped up in books, but books of a very different kind. 
you want to talk That's about right. that? Absolutely. Story? Absolutely. So I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community uh, in uh, uh, Brooklyn, New York, and then Elizabeth, New Jersey. And I, everywhere I went, books were not only present, but in use. Uh, they weren't ornaments, uh, right? They were, they were in use. The gaps on my grandfather's shelves moved week to week i would see different gaps i'd notice they, they, that they would o- open up in different ways and i actually the world that um, we all live in here is it was incredibly alien to me when i, I first uh, was exposed to it because where i come from everyone reads all the time everyone studies all the time my grandfather wasn't a scholar he wasn't even a rabbi he was a shopkeep and shopkeeps would go to work, work long days, take care of business, come home, be with the family and have dinner with the family. And then he would walk across the street. This is for those of you who know it, 16th Avenue and 53rd Street in Borough Park. Um, and he would walk across the street with the same group of, of people that he would study, had studied with for decades. Uh, they called it a chavrusa, which the root of which is the word friend uh, and the friendship that comes out over books and the study of books. And they did it as an end in itself in some way, um, but it's about what does it mean to, to live a meaningful life? And the recognition that when I, when I got out of it, so I was about 15 or so when I took my leave, um, I finally was able to take my leave of it, and I was exposed to the American way of education where one goes to an institution and by the time they're maybe 25, if they're uh, you know, maybe a little slow, some take longer, they're, they're educated. It's done. They've got their stamp. Everyone who knows, some of them even get letters after their name, educated. Well, that's not what we grew up with. We grew up with something um, where we would strive to be learned. And in fact, there were books that we weren't even allowed to open until we were 40 because you need to be wise in order to, to engage these books. And there are books, there's a book that I love called Pirkei Avos, which uh, translates as Ethics of the, of the Fathers. And it's uh, the summation of the wisdom of all the great rabbis from the Talmud, standing on one foot, here's, here's what I think in the world. And we read the entire book, start to finish, every single Saturday. So, you know, do the math of 52 times a year times 60 years. I, I have no math. Uh, and, and you recognize that not only is the book change, you know, you change and, and the relationship, but everyone in the community is reading it too with you. And it's the height of wisdom. That was the start for me of how I related to books. And so the reverence that comes up that, that, that one might see in, in the pages of this book, but also in the bookstores that I go to, and not just the bookstores, but to the books, to the rabbis, uh, the, the booksellers who are, who are doing this work and keeping these places, and to the actual spaces themselves, the synagogues. Again, I'm not religious, uh, the, and the book isn't religious, but there is certainly a thread of reverence that runs through it, because this is, for me, the meaning and purpose of life. And we don't become educated in order to make a living, we become learned in order to figure out how to live. And that model, I think, holds for a secular world. On, on, on the road that took you to become a bookseller, uh, what were some of the stops that you made on that road? Yeah, yeah. So I started in 1994, which incidentally is the year that uh, Jeff Bezos founded Amazon. Uh, and Jeff Bezos uh, was not, I, Amazon's great for 10,000 reasons, but they're not booksellers. And he didn't come to it with that reverence. Um, I uh, came up through, actually through Barnes & Noble in the 90s. I worked throughout the country at different Barnes & Nobles, including a store in Seattle, Washington. Um, and I, I say that because that store was, huge, uh, a full Loeb library of classical literature, a bunch of PhDs on staff right by the University of Washington. And I thought, huh, 
I didn't want to be around academics. Like this is this is the stuff. I, I don't you know and not having to you know sit and specialize in, in something, but actually uh, be around people who are generalists, but but read religion, philosophy, poetry, literature, criticism, essays, things like that. And I thought, well, I need to be on great campuses. So then I went to the University of California, Berkeley, and I ran their bookstore uh, for about six years. I went to Stanford, and now I'm at Seminary Co-op, which is at the University of Chicago, and it is a place where you know town and gown come together, where um, folks who are students students, community members, faculty, administrators, uh, and a lot of visiting um, intellectual tourists uh, come through and very strong opinions uh, about everything. And it's the one place, and I, I saw this in Berkeley and I saw this in Stanford and I see it now, where people have opposing viewpoints and are, can be vicious outside the store come together and this is the one thing that they agree on. And I can give one brief example of that at Berkeley. Actually, the structure of it um, spoke to that. It was a student-owned bookstore. It's the ASUC Cal Student Store, Associated Students of the University of California. The board is made up of three professors, all of whom disagree with each other, three administrators, and three students, two undergrad and one grad. And they all disagree on every issue except for the bookstore. And that was where I learned that bookstores actually are community spaces. They actually do have constituencies that are not just the customer at the register. They are too, but that they are beholden to their community. And unlike you, I have to say, Mitch, I, I am so in awe of what you've done because you've built this. I have never built a store. I've never started from scratch. I've always stewarded a store. And so for me, I can take, you know, booksellers are very humble. And this is part of the problem, actually, is that we're so, we are humble and we don't talk about what we do because who needs to know our problems? It's not, you know, everyone has problems. Because I have never founded anything, I've never built anything, I can take all of my ego and put it right into like crowing about the store. And that is a big part of what I'm trying to do with this book and with the industry too, is say, we, I get it, you're building these spaces and we owe you so much. You owe, I mean, I, I, you can't get upset with me for saying this, but, but it's true. I mean, what an amazing cultural good that many communities don't have. And I just don't want to lose them. And on some level, the book is selfish for me. I just want to shop at the seminary co-op in 40 years. I want to shop here. And next time I'm back, I want there to be great bookstores in this country. And I think it's all of our responsibilities. We're all booksellers in that way to keep these places going. You know, we've both been in the industry a long time. We know a lot of people at a lot of bookstores. And you mentioned many of them. And some of them you know, were the bookstores that I remember before I got into the business. And one very important one, and one very important bookseller is City Lights in Berkeley. Uh, I mean, in San Francisco. And uh, the bookseller is Paul, uh, Paul Yamazaki. And why don't you talk a little bit about the influence of people like Paul Absolutely. in our industry. And had, a lot of people are a little amazed, really, at how close we all are. That's in right. one way or another. Right. We're quote unquote competitors according to you know antitrust guidelines, and yet we couldn't be more collaborative and supportive and warm and loving. Uh, Paul's been a bookseller for f over 50 years, and um, he uh, works at City Lights, which was founded by the poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And Paul was an organizer who was in jail, uh, San Francisco State. There were some protests, and he was in jail. And the only way to get out of jail was to be employed. And he called a friend of his who worked at City Lights and said, hey, I need, I need a job. 
And they asked Lawrence and said, yeah, yeah, he's got a job, sure. And that's how he got out of jail. And that's the first, that's how he got hired. And he's been there ever since, 50 years. Uh, it's a beautiful origin story. But what, what happened with Paul was he did something that I find to be worth, um, worth studying a little bit. And I think this is something that you've done as well. And it's something that I aspire to do. And I try and, and, and show others what that looks like. So good bookstores reflect their community, right? They they see what's happening and they try and um, they, they try and reflect it back. And somebody like Paul and the booksellers who came through City Lights, and I think this is true of, of what you've done, not just in the store, but also with the festival and with the literary community in Miami as to, and Southern Florida in general and nationally uh, and internationally, I think that there's something about that reflection over time that becomes its own an, not just argument, but beacon, right? So what happened at City Lights? Well, North Beach really, uh, which is the neighborhood it's in in San Francisco, started attracting people to the space that Lawrence and Paul had built and, and many others, um, but Paul is, is a beacon there. And that included the literary world. It included writers. It included, I mean, we've all, we all make our pilgrimages to City Lights. Uh, it includes uh, editors and publishers. It includes um, a, any number of, of cultural heroes. And Paul then and City Lights started not just reflecting, but they're actually creating that community, right? And I would make the argument that, uh, so the Seminary Co-op on the south side of Chicago, which is an incredibly rich and vibrant area of the country, so many of our best musicians and poets and writers uh, came out of the, the south side of Chicago, not just the neighborhood we're in, but the neighborhood surrounding it. And that brought people to it. And then we have a university there that brings amazing people. Um, but I will say, if we go to New Haven, for instance, uh, Yale is there, and they don't have a bookstore to speak of. So it's not just that. What happened was that the seminary co-op created the community as well. They didn't just reflect it, and they created one of the most, one of the most rich and vibrant academic and intellectual communities in the country and the world, I would say. And without the seminary co-op, the University of Chicago is not what we know it to be. And it really isn't, it's not just the other way around. The bean counting that happens around uh, the arts and the humanities and social sciences and the ways in which the business school or other, or even, you know, scientists and others, they can make arguments, uh, uh, great arguments on behalf of useless research. And by useless, I don't mean it will end up being useless. I just mean that you don't know where it's going, uh, right? And we talk about the Institute for Advanced Studies as an example of, let's just get brilliant people together and let them do whatever they do. And don't worry about the results because we trust them. They're going to do something important. And that is the way things happen. They've advocated for themselves, but we, we humble folk need to be less humble because we haven't figured out how to, you know, we, we're, you know, there's brilliance about quantification, but we need to develop our eloquence as qualifiers in order to actually make this argument. And I think ultimately, when you're in this business, that all of all of us who are in this business in this room, or you, it is a business of passion. There's a book that came out last year uh, dealing with the passion economy, and that's really what we're all about. Um, I don't think anyone in their right mind would do this if <laughs> they didn't right. have a passion for it, that's right? right? Trying to figure out a model to make it work. I realized that for 40 years, I've been trying to figure out how to make <laughs> it work completely. And it is the passion that, you know, makes you find angel investors or, you know, gets you into arguments with, uh, you know, with publishers going, just give me another 30 days, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So we do what we do to make it work. Um, and we certainly couldn't do it 
without the incredible staffs that we have mm -hmm. in the bookstores in which we work. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I'm so fortunate about is that I've been able to open my doors and have a community of booksellers come and work with us at Books and Books. So really what Books and Books is, is a mixture of, and, and an amalgam of really passionate book people, which is the case with most bookstores, I would think. That's right. Well, and I, I think about the, the your influence and the influence of, of others uh, in creating the next generation and bringing pe getting people involved and bringing people uh, into the industry, but also into the bookstore the way that I say that we're all booksellers. So there's so many of you that have supported the stores in ways beyond. And it turns out that charisma and passion and, frankly, like doing the right thing. I mean, this is not... No one's looking to you know get over on anyone. We're trying to do something really powerful for the community, and doing the right thing really matters. I want to just really uh, share a brief quote, and it's kind of in response to um, what you and I have been so lucky. Um, I really fortunate to have been able to. Um, for me, I've spent my entire career in bookselling to be able to retire, hopefully from these jobs. That's incredible, um, but it's not a given. And and uh, one of the reasons why I'm not only writing this book, but you know, going on tour to talk about it, is to really raise awareness of. The, uh, the how precarious things are. So let's move to some questions. So I belong to a book club. We actually pay a literature professor to come and pose questions and stuff. So it's really fun. Uh, this has been going on for almost 10 years. And I have seen over time some of my book club members move from the paper to the digital reading. Um, in 2000, and I think 10, I took a trip to Italy with my son and I wanted to read, so I got the Kindle, sure. downloaded like four books, and I thought, oh yeah, this is great. Came home and I had written, you know, read a couple of books in there and I'm like, oh, let me share with my daughter. Well, I can't do that. Plus, I love the feel, the smell, the book. I love to sit with the book. How, so aside from the survival of the independent bookstore, how do you also see the survival of the touch of a book? This is a this is a really important conversation that libraries are having actually, um, and I, I I it's above my pay grade to weigh in on. But one thing I, I want to say, as far as I'm concerned, um, e-readers are fantastic, and anyone who gets books in any way is fantastic. I have no concerns, but I think it's great. I actually, um, you know. My, my mother uh, liked to read lying down and her eyesight's not great and every book is now large print. It used to be I have to buy them special. Uh, there's a lot to recommend them. So I think for me, it's not, it, that's not the question. And I also wouldn't critique, I actually have no critiques in here at all. It's actually just celebration. I mean, a big part of the bookseller's work and a lot of where that charisma comes from is enthusiasm. We just love these books so much and I'm taking the enthusiasm and moving it to uh, the bookstore instead of just the books. But to recognize that there are so many models and there's so many reasons people use Amazon even to buy a book, let's say. Um, so let's say Amazon, for instance, or any of the e-reading companies found ways to support the ecosystem that creates all, all, all of this and makes it possible. That actually is what matters to me. It's not that uh, there are people are buying books on Amazon or using e-readers. It's that there isn't a deliberate model that is built to support what we love about books and bookstores, including having physical copies. It doesn't mean every copy needs to be physical, um, but we need to 
take this retail model that we inherited from the 20th century, throw it away, and say, what in the 21st century is a model we can build deliberately to create spaces just like this in any community that wants it? And to ensure that a reader can get a book however they want, including digitally, from the library. Libraries are fantastic. But that these spaces can still create the discovery, community, delight, and uh, meaning that they currently do. I also think the good news is that we saw a, a big upswing in ebook sales. I mean, simply from a sales perspective, but you're seeing people return to the physical book as well. I think the figures bear that out, I believe. So I don't think this is going anywhere very quickly. Yes, uh, you mentioned Jeff Bezos, who, who, by the way, went to school way south of here, and he. You mentioned that. They was not a bookseller. My understanding was always that that big corporation has started out as online bookseller. So I, I was curious uh, yeah. Good. your interpretation of that. Great, great question. Thank you for asking that because it's an important distinction and it's a little bit counterintuitive. Um, so selling books does not make one a bookseller, just like having a space filled with books that you sell doesn't make it a bookstore. The Amazon bookstore is just closed, right? And uh, it wasn't... Uh, Adam Gopnik had this beautiful uh, uh, elegy for uh, Le Hoon in uh, Paris that closed seven, eight years ago, saying when a bookstore closes, an argument ends. Well, I don't think anyone is seeing those bookstores close and saying, well, an argument ended. They really weren't bookstores. In fact, they ended because they were working, they were actually too, um, they functioning like bookstores. And when you read the press release that Amazon put out, they said, yeah, people were just coming in. They were browsing. It wasn't a destination to go buy something. And so we had to close them. We said, well, you were actually, maybe it was functioning in that way. Um, but the, the, the point, um, I think, for uh, for me, and, and standing in the presence of one of our great booksellers, it, it, it's, it's a Shonda. Can I say a Shonda here? Everyone knows what I mean? It's a Shonda to say that Jeff Bezos is a bookseller. I mean, like, that is not, that is, that is cheap. Uh, you know, he sells books. And the fact that Amazon is the largest seller of books by far in the world and in the country, and that they're not booksellers, i.e. they don't have the qualities that make bookselling, which are filtration, selection, assemblage, right? Uh, putting, putting books together in a certain way, and then in the enthusiasm and the discernment in order to figure out how to do that, it means that we, as an the book business ecosystem, is completely at the mercy of somebody who doesn't care about it. And that is deeply destructive and very dangerous. If he tomorrow, or if the angelic Mackenzie Scott tomorrow just said, here, we're going to take these billions and put them back into the entire ecosystem, libraries, books, edit booksellers, editors, authors, agents, publishers, no one, and, and let's support the creation of this great cultural good. That's it. They're heroes, like James Patterson, right? They're heroes. They just put the money in, and, and, and frankly, they, they owe it. Uh, they, they took it out uh, in the first place. It actually would be uh, you know, bringing it back into a world that should have had it. But Mitchell, <laughs> so you have created a community around this store. Everybody knows it really functions as a community art center for so many people. And I've often wondered why it doesn't follow a nonprofit model. And I'm curious about your thoughts about that. Well, thank you. Um, Actually, uh, because of, of people like Jeff and other things that have been in the air, one of the things that we're exploring right now is maybe not turning the bookstore completely into a not-for-profit, but we are exploring the idea of creating what I'm calling the Books and Books Literary Foundation. Uh, 
So something that we will be probably announcing within the year is the idea of creating a foundation so that all of the community things that we do do will live on no matter what happens in the retail world. Because I think the sense of community that we create, you know, the work that uh, is done by people like Christina and Aaron Gael and everybody else who works at the store um, is so important that we would hate to lose it. And uh, I, I, during the pandemic, I realized that we were basically a literary arts organization that was basically funding itself through the sale of books. And that's a hard thing to do, as, as Jeff says. Um, but bookstores are democratic spaces. Anyone can walk in with, with no money in their pocket and wander the stacks. And I personally, I chart my own um, financial uh, health uh, based on the books I either could couldn't buy early on or could buy later. I mean, there were you know, remainders and used books. I was able to buy uh, paperbacks and then eventually hardcovers and eventually maybe I'll be able to afford some of these gorgeous Toshin books. And, uh, uh, um, and, and, and recognizing that, though, that the space itself is democratic and we want to keep it that way. Um, first off, I want to thank you for having a store like this because this is my first time coming to Books and Books. And uh, I came upon the store because I have an assignment to write on. Um, but... That browsing experience that you mentioned, Mitchell, it's it's true. As soon as I walked in, you can probably ask one of the, the employees that work here. As soon as I walked in, I saw the big bookshelf you have in that room. I was in awe. The last time I've been to a bookstore, it was let alone a private one, right? Um, the last one was Borders or Barnes & Noble's. But walking into that store, it felt like a retail because that's what it is. I didn't have that experience just like what I did earlier and when I came in here. So I do have to comment that that browsing, um, what you were talking about browsing, it is a great experience. It I felt very unique because not only was I looking at the different colors and the displays of the books, but like I was actually reading at the titles, trying to see, oh, what's this book about? Right. What is this? What is that? Right. And, you know, one thing leads to another, and who knows? You know, I probably could discover something new or new interest or something that has been pending in the back of my mind to like, hey, by the way, you know, I should go back to that idea or something. So just to comment on that, and when you mentioned about browsing, I was like, <laughs> that's literally what just happened to me right. walking into the store. Right. What, so what's, your what's your name? Ramel. Ramel. Ramel, thank you so much for that comment. Okay. <laughs> this is a bookseller to the bone. I, I, I want to share with you, Ramel, something that, that's remarkable even just hearing you say that. And I'm so glad you shared that. It's beautiful. Um, so I've been so privileged this last week and a half to be able to go to bookstores every day and bookstores throughout the country, including bookstores that I've been to many times and love, but also bookstores that I know the booksellers well, but I hadn't been to their stores yet. And there is a brilliant bookstore in D.C. called Loyalty Books, someone we both know well, Hannah Oliver Depp, who's a brilliant bookseller. Um, it's, it's, and it's got a lot of press recently. It's one of the, our great black-owned bookstores in the, in the country. And I was browsing. I was inside her mind. I've, for, for years, she's been talking about this store. And to actually be with her in that space was really special. And it just so happens, Ramel, that the book above your head is a book I never would have bought ever, but it is a Taylor Swift, The Wisdom of Taylor Swift. <laughs> And I spent probably 15 minutes think, looking at ta what Taylor Swift has to say about love, and I thought, huh, I couldn't agree more. That's incredible. And you know, I'm reading Augustine and the Talmud or whatever, but I would never have seen that. And you're sitting, you happen to be sitting right under it, and that browse there was, so you discover things you didn't know you needed, right? Um, but before we go, I just have you. to say a couple of things first. Uh, 
would I would love it if I want to give a shout out to all the booksellers from Books and Books who are here. And if those of you who work at the store, if you could just stand, that would be great. I know there's Gael, and there's Raquel, and there's Christina, um, and there's Elizabeth, and all, and there's there's Ed and Robert, and glad my memory is still here. And there's Gloria, who was a big bookseller here at the bookstore, who's now working and, and on fire. She's got the Spanish language market going. Um, but I also want to give a shout out to both Jeff and Raquel Roquet, who both work, uh, Raquel works at the store. And Raquel was one of the founders of the Miami Book Fair with me, with her store, which was called the Downtown <laughs> Book Center. And we are so fortunate to have her working with us. And both Jeff and Raquel was announced today with a lot of, a lot, it was a really vicious campaign. But the two of them have just been elected on the board of the American Booksellers Association. So, so we expect some wonderful things ahead. And we're going to see, uh, see not-for-profit bookstores all across the country now. I hope so. I want to just say one thing before we close, too. And this is something that um, some, a few of our event um, uh, uh, coordinators, uh, or authors actually bring up. So you're here. The space is beautiful. Don't worry about my book. Just buy a book. It doesn't matter what. And I will sign. I'll sign travel books. I'll sign the Taylor <laughs> Swift. Whatever you want. But buy, buy a book while you're here. Get some coffee. Get some wine. You're in for a great ride. If you, buy, you, you, you don't have to necessarily be into bookstores, but to be inside of his mind was a great afternoon that I spent. So please. And thank you all for coming. Hang around. Stick around. And Jeff, thank you, man. It was great. <laughs>